0: Please open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4 again. This week I want to read verses 1 to 24 the entire chapter even though we studied the first few verses last week because the first few verses form the context for the conflict that we'll be studying again this week. The title of our sermon today is then work on the house of God ceased. Let's hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Ezra chapter four, verses one to twenty four. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile, let me make a note to those of you that haven't been here that uh, the, the Jews have been exiled in a foreign land and the ruler there sent them back and gave them the command to rebuild their city and their temple. So they are doing what the empire that they live under, imagine America an empire today, they're doing what President Bush told them to do and going back to their land and rebuilding. All right, you have to understand that I'm mixing it up because it's not President Bush and it's not, I don't want to say anything about politics yet, I will. But you have to understand, overwhelming empire, the emperor sends them back and says, go back to your homeland and rebuild. So they're doing what they've been told to do. But there are other people there who don't want them to do it. So uh, we pick up the conflict. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridith, Tabiel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnopper deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Now, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the what? The rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, and by the way, that little thing translated, we are in the service of the palace, uh, literally means we have eaten of the salt of the palace. All right? And it's said this way because it used to be the case that uh, if you were in the employ of the government, you were said to be eating the salt of the palace. And this was your way of saying that you got a salary. In fact, in Latin, salarium means salt money, which is where we get our word salary from. So Every time you talk about your salary, if you're not hourly, uh, you can think about salt. Now, because... So here are the ones attacking God's people. They're saying... God's people are evil. They're rebellious. They're not going to pay their taxes. But we, and what are they saying here? We, because we are in the service of the palace, because we eat your salt, all right? We're faithful. We're loyal. And it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. So that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in the past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. And then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander to Shimshai the scribe and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in past days. that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river and that tribute, custom and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by force of arms. Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now, last week I talked about the nature of the hostility between these two groups. If you remember, when God sent his people to the promised land after a number of kings, They divided. They divided after the death of Solomon, David's son. And they divided into the northern kingdom, which is Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Now, down in the south, if you look at the first verse of our text, the first verse of the chapter, it says the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. So these are two of the tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes. The third one that lived in the south was Levi. And you know from the division of the kingdoms that there was bad blood between the north and the south. You also know, if you know anything of Scripture, you know that the southern kingdom was the favored son. All right, Down in the south, among other things, was Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the place that God commanded His people to have their temple. And God was not open-minded about the geographical location of His worship. God was an exclusivist even geographically. So that you go through the Old Testament again and again, you'll find that if God is saying about His people that they are turning away from Him, there is a statement, and the statement is that they were devoted to, or that they gave attention to, or that they worshipped where? In the high places. And every time you read that, what it's saying is they are betraying God because they're going off into the places that the natural man thinks God wants to be worshipped. Which is the high places. And so, what they're doing is saying, you know, forget you, God. You say Jerusalem. You say to be, you know, small-minded and local, you know, but we know you're bigger than that. You know, it's like the men that, you know, are are, are deer hunters and that's their religion or fishermen. You know, I worship God better out sitting on the lake in the ice shack than I do, you know, in any church, you know. And, And the world is filled with people that have their own high places and refuse to be faithful to the church of Jesus Christ. And it's the same issue today. It's not, you know, Wheaton, although some people think it is, but it's the church, it's a geographical location. We can be in a in a in a school owned by the government, but here is the house of God. And it's very scandalous to many people that even Calvin, a Protestant, said that he who would not have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. That in the Westminster Standards, it says that outside of the church, there is normally not salvation. Oh, we hate that because what? We're, we're broad-minded, we're open-minded, we're, we're inclusivist, we're pluralistic, we're, we're not tight, we're not under authority, and we know Jesus doesn't really care about authority and and, and what he cares is what's in our hearts. Well, this was the same way as the Samaritans. You know, come on, guys. We don't have to go into your turf. We have our God, too. He's your God. He's our God. We have our high places, and we worship God a lot better in our high places because then we don't have to go on your turf. And it's humiliating going on your turf. And so this is the evolving conflict. Northern Kingdom southern kingdom southern kingdom has the center of worship northern kingdom doesn't want to come worship god in the southern kingdom well then you have captivity and the emperor sends people back to the northern kingdom all right and those northern kingdom people um so get all mixed up and they become a mongrel group all right they're they're not purebreds anymore they begin to intermarry and then we're told that those northern people begin to worship god And to fear the Lord, and this is saying about God, the true God, but it also says what about them? It says that they didn't just fear and worship the true God, but it says they also worshiped their gods. Now, who are their gods? Well, their gods are every god that's an idol, that's demonic, every god that claims the worship of people, every god that that Satan lifts up as a usurper to the sole throne of Jesus Christ. And so they were syncretistic. They were pluralistic. They were inclusivist. They were broad-minded. The northern kingdom said, we worship the true God and we worship our gods. And what's the problem? And the southern kingdom says, all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. And they said, shut up, dude. You know, there's room enough for all of us. We can get along. Can't we all get along? And this is always the spirit of the age. This is the spirit of our age. So you have this conflict. The emperor sends them back. They come back obedient to him. He says rebuild. He gives them wealth from the, from, from the empire. They come back to build and what happens? Immediately, this mongrel group from up north, many of their relatives, all right? Sure, they would have been related. The mongrel group, they say, "Hey, let us help you. Can't we help you, please? Isn't, isn't the land big enough for all of us? You know, do you have to be intense? You know, let us help you. please. We'll help you." And here the leaders have a decision. And what's the decision? Well, the decision in the elders board is whether or not you'll discipline a rich man. You say, whoop. There goes Tim again. He's like doing a uh, brain burp. (laughs) What does this have to do with elders and rich people? Well, come on, think about it. Zerubbabel has a decision to make. Here comes this mongrel group, and all they want is to have their idols and God together. And and they say they'll help. And boy, rich people can help, can't they? So it comes in the elders' meeting. And the elders say, well, we know he's been married four times. And we know that, uh, you know, he makes most of his money off race horses, But he could be so helpful. So very helpful. <laughs> and the pastor... God willing, says it's gambling money. And he does not fear God, and his life is a moral shambles. Well, yeah, but he's been faithful to his third wife for five years now. The pastor, God willing, says, men, if this were a poor man, how would you be treating him? And the elders say, shut up! (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) <laughs> now, of course, nobody ever says shut up in an elders meeting. But you get the point. These Samaritans from up north, when they come to offer their help, have real help to offer, don't they? They know the way of the land. They have wealth. They have numbers. They've been there a long time. They want to help. And what does rebel say? rebel says, you have no part in what we're doing. Okay. Think of the temptation the people of God always have to compromise just a little bit so that they can grow. It may not be refusing to discipline a rich man. It may be that the church just shades its doctrine on manhood and womanhood just a little bit so that the world won't think we smell to high heaven. You know it may be that the church decides that you know it's going to begin to um, uh, have a singles group when the singles group grows, it becomes immoral to the max, uh, but the church never disciplines anybody in the singles group for fornication and adultery because after all, the singles group is a happening place, and a lot of rich up-and-coming professionals go to that singles group. It may be that we begin to have women up front cooing into a microphone and it's sensuous enough that all the young men like it and all of Indiana University's students start coming. But we all act like we don't know that this is what is at stake and we can't believe when the pastor actually says it. Because everybody has a good heart and there's nothing really at stake ever, is there? (laughs) You know? You know? We never have to deal with the decisions Sir had to make. And our elders board never fights over the issue of how to treat a rich man, do we? Oh yes we do. Oh yes we do. In our elders boards we regularly fight over how we're going to handle people of substance. Why do you think the book of James says when a rich man comes in, don't give him preferential treatment? Was that because of the church at the time of James was really gnarly and sinful? <laughs> Or was it because the church at the time of James was like the church at the time of um, uh, my man Mitch, our governor? The church has always been the same. The seductions to compromise are always the same. And if your elders' board is not arguing and fighting over them, your elders' board is dead This is how we hold ourselves accountable is by having men in a room locked up together, having to make the decisions. And when one man wants to give preferential treatment to a rich or influential man or a judge or a governor, the other men say, over my dead body you're going to do that. And that's what it means to be led by elders. You pray that your elders don't make compromises and you praise God that Zerubbabel didn't. Now, let me ask, when Zerubbabel made the decision he wasn't going to accept the help of the enemies of God from the Samaritan group, do you think Zerubbabel thought that it would just be okay and that they'd be happy with his decision? Or do you think Zerubbabel had an inkling that maybe as a result of that decision that his work and the work of the people of the God in repairing the temple all right, would then become unbelievably hated? by this group up north. I, sure, no matter how tactfully we tried to be at his response, he knew what was coming. Do you understand? In other words, he made a decision not to accept their help knowing that it would result in their persecution. I don't have any question that that's the case. All right? So how did the persecution come? Well, look at the text. Now, I want to say something at this point. I hate to have to say this, but You'll have to understand it. Did you notice in the text that in verses, uh, look at verse 16. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, do you remember we were dealing with the temple? Now we're dealing with the city and the walls. And do you, does it make you wonder why that is the case? Well, the reason is that what people think is that starting and it's arguable which verses. But that starting with, look at verse 6. Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, the whole way down to verse, and it's arguable whether it's verse 23 or verse 24, you have a historical foreshadowing. So that what's going on here is somebody writing history here is looking back and mainly giving you the account of what's happening here. But he knows he's going to keep telling the story to here And so in order for you to understand this story here, he says, you know, I better put in a little bit of here to here so that they understand the development of this. And so what they're doing is mixing up some of the time here. And the question is, how much of this is long in the future and how much of it is short in the future. What we do know is that there was about a 20 year delay in the rebuilding of the temple. It did shut down at this time. The statement in verse 24 is the statement of it shutting down. Then work on the house of God, not the walls, not not the city. The house of God ceased and it was stopped. So that's about a 20-year period. But all of the other verses are accounts of this conflict, which goes on and on and on, continues into the book of Nehemiah, has Haggai the prophet address, All right, and we'll get into that in the coming weeks. So in one sense, what I'm about to go into in the middle of the chapter uh, is not specifically addressing the conflict at the time of Zerubbabel. But on the other hand, this is always the conflict. The same principles are the ones fighting the same arguments, the same everything. So you can forget about this, except if you're confused about it, talking about the walls, talking about the city, talking about the temple, the different names of the rulers. That's why it's it's a it's a it's an aside historically where a whole hodgepodge of names are mixed up and times. Now, look at what is actually said here. First, look at who it is who makes the accusations. In verse seven, it lists them. Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabiel, the rest of his colleagues. In verse eight, Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe. Verse nine, the rest of their colleagues, the judges, the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, and that, that is the Elamites. So what we see is this conflict that is developing um, is a conflict that involves an awful lot of people. It starts with specific names. It ends up with whole areas. And what we know from that is that all the rulers of those areas are involved. Now, second, um, let's ask ourselves the question, what are their actual accusations? And this is where it gets very interesting for us. If you look at verse 12, it says what about them? I made note of it earlier. It says, the accusation was, let it be known to the king, that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding what? The rebellious and evil city. Now, were they rebellious and were they evil? Now They were doing exactly what the head of the empire told them to do. They were even using his money to do it. Had they been rebellious and evil in the past? Yes, every teenager has been. And if the father... Never lets that teenager forget the time he took the car when he was 15 and crashed it. And keeps rubbing his nose in it. It's hopeless for the teenager, isn't it? So, yeah, you can always point to points in the life of a teenager. You can point to points in the life of a nation when they have been rebellious. They had been rebellious in the past. There's no question. But remember, it's a false accusation. Because, you know, one swallow doth not a summer make. They are not a rebellious people. What they're doing is submitting to the emperor and doing what he told them to do. So it's a smear tactic. So first of all, rebellious and evil city. Then verse 13, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. Three different kinds of ways that the state got money and it needed it because it was in conflict with Greece. They will not pay tribute, custom, or toll and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Oh boy, those are fighting words, aren't they? Touch a man in the pocketbook in the wallet. Hmm? Touch a king in the wallet. Remember when the Branch Davidians you know, were, were going to take over our country with tanks and, and nuclear warheads and fighter planes? And, and it, they, they were such a threat that, the, 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 that our country had to go in and burn them up? What was the real threat? Don't ever forget that when the king takes your money in taxes, he takes it at the end of a barrel of a gun. George Bush is a nice man. George Bush is the one that we have put in the position of taking all of our money at the end of a barrel of a gun. And if you don't believe that that's how your money's being taken, just stop paying it. <laughs> and you'll find out how mellow and reasonable and, and, and gentlemanly the IRS is. And if you defy them, then you'll go to court. And if you defy the court, what will happen? The barrel of the gun will come. So when they say what? They say they will not pay tribute customer toll and it will damage the revenue of the kings. You remember the little Boston Tea Party? (laughs) Which every elementary kid learns in this country is the beginning of the revolt against England back in the colonial times. And uh, taxes are a serious issue. So they're accusing them of sedition. They're evil. They're rebellious. They're seditious. They're going to undermine the money of the empire. And then verse 15, that city Jerusalem is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces. And they have incited revolt within it in past days. Not just themselves rebellious, but inciting revolt. Verse 16, bringing it to a conclusion, we inform the king, if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. In other words, your empire is going to be destroyed. You're going to begin to lose whole sections of your colonies. They're going to be gone. And you better see, this is your future passing in front of you. You let these guys get away with what they're doing, rebuilding. This is your future as an empire. It's interesting if you look at the end of the text, the last verse, it says what? It says, we inform the king that if that, excuse me, no, verse 24, not verse 16. Um, It says, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. No, it's not that verse. Yeah, it's verse 22, sorry. Beware of being negligent. This is the response of the emperor, beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? You see this? They say, you're going to be hurt. Your empire is going to be hurt. You're going to lose your colonies. So he responds and says, don't be negligent in stopping this work. Because why? Because he does not want to see damage increase to the detriments of the kings. Now, how would how would you? You're reading this text. It's in the Bible. It is God's word. How would you apply this to your life today? Syncretists, people that want to have God and and the idols of their nations, same time, want to cultivate a lack of discernment, want to be naive, want to help. They say, no, we're not going to let you help. They get angry. They say, okay, we're going to go over your head. They go to the head. They say, these guys are rebellious. They're not going to pay your taxes. You're going to lose your whole empire. So the work gets shut down. Now, How do you apply this? How do you apply it? Well, first of all, the decision of Zerubbabel is clearly wrong, isn't it? Because had it been right, his church would have been 5,000 members by now. And he would have had a book. And he would have been on Dobson being interviewed. I mean, Zerubbabel is a failure, and that shows God isn't with him. And so the first thing we need to do is throw out The elders we have and get some new elders who will be honoring to the rich man. And you say, You you have a brain burp again? I say, Come on, what's at stake is a little compromise. We'll be able to build the church, have the money to build the church. I mean, is it ironic that over there, there's a church getting built? Just a few compromises and there will be more people to help us and I'll be able to save more of my money for my house instead of God's house. Come on, Tim, chill out. You see people get up and leave in the middle of your sermons. Are you an idiot? And so Zerubbabel says no and what happens? The work gets shut down. So they replace the elders and they replace Zerubbabel and they get some new people that go up north and say, hey, we were wrong. We'd really like you to help us. Wouldn't you please... Is that what happened? No. So, number one, we learn that because suffering comes when you make a biblical decision, you don't think you're wrong. The Bible doesn't say Zerubbabel was an idiot. You see what happens when you're like tight and exclusivist and don't accept help from people who are sincere. You see, he alienated them. He went to the they went to the emperor, and look at what happened. It's just awful. They didn't get a large church. They didn't get the temple rebuilt. It's so sad that men like Zerubbabel have to be all their lives being so tight. You know, poor Zerubbabel. I mean, he must have hated his father. We have all these psychological ways and political ways that we explain away men like Zerubbabel so that we don't have to give as much money to the building of God's house. You say, oh, come on, Tim, it's not a matter of money. I say, what does the Bible say? For the love of money is the root of all evil. What do journalists say? Follow the money. Listen, people. Be unapologetic lovers of the Apostle Paul. The unapologetic lovers of Zerubbabel, have your heart unprotected. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. We don't have to be ashamed of anything when we suffer the world's opposition. Because Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you too. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't mean we have to lead with the chin. And I say, yeah, we don't have to lead with the chin. But when compromise comes to us through the mouth of a snake, we better know what we're dealing with. And we better have the faith to say no to the compromise. We have to do that. Because that's what shows whether we have faith and live by faith. And if we have faith and then go moping around so sad that we had to have faith, and now look what's happened. The work stopped. It's pathetic. You should have faith joyfully. Right? It should be our joy to live in the Lord, to walk by the Lord. It shouldn't be something that we say, oh, here I go again. Now I'm going to have to suffer for the Gospel. What was the spirit that characterized the early Christians at the time of Nero? What was the spirit of the Christians in the book of Hebrews? What does it say? It says, joyfully they submitted to the confiscation of their property. Why? Because they knew they had a home in heaven. I don't think Zerubbabel was sitting around moping. He got shut down. The Jews got shut down. I don't think in the book of Acts, when Paul kept getting persecuted and the persecution kept growing, that the Christians came to Paul and said, Paul, would you shut your mouth? Come on, Paul, just just, just fudge a little bit. Chip a little bit off the edge, you know? Trim a little bit. You know, Paul, don't be so, so, oh, what? So, what are you, Paul? You know, just don't be it, Paul. You know, whatever it is that causes you to do these things. I know you didn't have a good relationship with your father. but, But, Paul, <laughs> you know, chill out. Get some emotional stability, you know? Okay, so, you don't want me to apply the text this way. How do you want me to apply the text? I mean, you tell me how you want me to apply the text. You want me to talk about the significance of Z's and a number of B's in the same proper noun? Zerubbabel. You know, we could have a long discourse on, you know, B's and Z's and the significance and numerology of the Hebrew alphabet. I wish I knew what you just said. (laughs) Turn to the Lord. Well, here's what we have to do. We have to learn to love the places where we are most dependent on Jesus. Do you understand? And I'll tell you, this is true of me. It's my temptation, my tendency, maybe even a deep-rooted principle in me, that it's the points precisely where I'm most dependent on Jesus that I am most angry and resistant. Because I don't want to be dependent on Jesus. I want to depend on myself. I love my flesh. And so if you can learn to love having to walk by faith, not just as an individual, but as a family, and not just as a family, but as a church, and not just as a church, but in everything we do that we walk by faith, then it's about God and it's not about us you understand, then the glory goes to Him. Brothers and sisters, this country is filled with works that claim to be works of God and it's all about a man. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not going to name names because I get in trouble every time I do that. But you can go and look at the IRS records and see the salaries of these men. And then you tell me whether it's about God or about man. Come on, be honest. How much does a man have to earn doing the work of the Lord before we say it's about Him and not God? I earn from this church about $64,000 a year. Every year, those figures are put in the report. How many churches do that? We do that so that if you think I'm earning too much, you go to the elders, you say he's become affluent. His love is money. His love is His flesh. That's why it's there. So what if I earn 65000 Is that then about me and not about God? You say, oh, no, no. Come on, Tim. We're not talking about your salary. I say, okay, how about seventy? You know, when are we no longer depending on God and it's all a matter of you pay me and then I'll massage your conscience, huh? How about if I earn... 150 am i still godly is it about me or is it about god how about if i earn 200 friend of mine earns about 200 as a pastor What, what about 200 is that okay huh in fact a lot of my friends earn about 200 is that okay okay how about like 500 i have a friend that he's he's nationally known he earns between 500 and a million a year solely doing the work of scripture teaching scripture is that okay what was the northern kingdom offering the southern kingdom they were offering them resources workers help what was at stake what was at stake was whether they would trust god or trust the flesh what did they lose they lost not only the help of the north but they lost the approval of the kingdom the empire and they shut them down who made the right decision Now, one last application. Did you notice the center of the application is what? That they are a threat to the political realm. You see that? Rebels, not paying taxes, seditious. They're going to ruin your political enterprise. What did they say about Jesus? Do you remember? What did they say about Elijah? It's always the habit that God's people are accused of trying to destroy the political order of their day. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus? Because he was going to mess up their sweet deal with the Roman Empire. So the center of their accusation is you guys are messing up this political agreement, this empire. You're a threat to it. You have to be shut down. Now, let me ask you today. Do Christians pose any threat to the United States of America? Now, you know, you're not supposed to ask a question unless you know the answer to it. I know the answer to it. We are a very serious threat to the political order of the Western world and the United States of America. Why? Why is it that we're a threat to the U.S.? The reason is that the glue that holds the United States of America today together is no longer the Constitution. They'll tell you it is, but it's a new Constitution. All right. And, and it's not our president. Our president just has to give teeth to this order and make sure it works. What is the order that holds the United States of America together today? What it is, is going along to get along. All of our politics, our courts, everything is an effort to mediate the balkanism of American society. Every act about homosexual marriage, everything about abortion, everything about Iraq, about Muslims being a religion of peace, everything that's done in this country is aimed at at having us get along with each other even though we no longer have at the center of our nation god and the constitution written in light of scripture and i make no apology for saying that all right that is the old order and it's been thrown out and rodney king was not an idiot when rodney king said can't we all get along that's the center of america today Alan Bloom says it's the only value left is getting along with each other. Now, do Christians get along with other people? Well, in one sense, yes. We get along with prostitutes and drug addicts and alcoholics and convicted embezzlers. And we get along with United Auto Workers. This is my favorite UAW member over here. And we get along with the uneducated. We get along with the people over at the Bill Monroe Music Festival. Do we get along with New York City? Christians don't get along with New York City, do we? Do we get along with Christopher Hitchens? Christians don't get along with Christopher Hitchens. Why don't Christians get along with the powers that be in the Western world? Why are so many people writing books that attack God and surrogately attack us? Why? What do they hate about us? You know what they hate about us? They hate about us that we don't just go along to get along. That's what they hate about us. If we'd shut up about sodomy and change the word sodomy to homosexuality, we'd be fine. Because that little change of the word is a, is a tip of the hat to the new constitution. All right? because it takes it out of the moral category into a clinical category. It's homo versus hetero. And, and we all know that that's strictly speaking true. So don't say sodomite. But you know what word Paul uses? He uses the word catamite In the Bible. And it's the man who is the weaker of the homosexual pair, the receiver. Paul uses it in Scripture. And it's not a positive term. So all we have to do is just change our language about homosexuality just a little bit. But if we do that, will we love sodomites? We will not love them. Because we've tipped our hat to the new constitution and we're okay. We fit in. What about the issue of sexuality? All we have to do is change the word sex to the word gender. And then it's a construct, a social construct, and everybody can choose where in the continuum you stand. You're, you're a, a transsexual, transsexual, you're a, you're a, you're, you're a gay transsexual, you're a, a straight, transsexual living in a woman's body, you're a, you know, and then like way over here is man-woman. And you can identify any way you want to. So if you just change your language and stop talking about sex, which is a biologically bifurcated two choices like computer programming, you know, we just talk about gender and and our identity of gender, you know. Again, tip your hat to the new constitution. Make a bow to the new revolution. All right. You see? It's just easy. And once you've done it, you you don't say sodomy anymore and you don't say, then the next thing you have to do is when you're reading this text, you think to yourself, hey, we've got scholars that will do work for us. And every time it says that the heads of fathers' households, we say, oh, man, these people, they're just like so patriarchal. We'll call it heads of families because that's how we speak. You just tip your hat to the new constitution. You know, just a little change here, and a little change there, and a little change here, and pretty soon you got a whole new thing. Don't you? Pretty soon you're a Samaritan. You say, Oh, come on, Tim, the gospel isn't at stake with the language we use about sodomy, or how we talk about sexuality, or how we talk about manhood and womanhood. I say, Oh, okay, would you show me where the gospel is at stake? And you say, Well, yeah, if in the future they require you to perform a marriage of two men, that's the gospel. And I say, okay, so that'll be the big thing, right? And you say, yes. And I say, okay, so like if I've compromised at every little thing, do you think I'll be faithful in the big thing? You know I won't. Because by then I'll be earning $200,000 like my friends. (laughs) Because why? The church will have grown and you won't have nearly as heavy a weight to carry in the building of our new building. You see, it all comes around, doesn't it? Journalists say, follow the money. There is a reason you speak the way you speak. There is a reason you do not refer to the human race as man, but human beings. Tip the hat to the new Constitution. And the new Constitution of America is going along to get along. Can't we all get along? And there are infinite numbers of ways every single week where you have an opportunity to confess faith in Jesus Christ. And you have a choice. All your words, all those times where you're silent and should speak up, and all those times you blabber on and fail to address the one issue that should be addressed. All right? They're all opportunities for you to live by faith or to live by sight. To have your home here or do you have your home in heaven? How do you think the church grew in the first few centuries? Do you think they grew because the Roman Empire became positively uh, uh, oriented towards Christians? No. What happened was Christians joyfully suffered. And that's where the saying comes that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And if you want your little boys to grow up like Polycarp, where his mother had to hide his clothes so he would be naked so he would not run outside to be a martyr when they came to take somebody in his neighborhood, you better start teaching them how to talk now so that people at his elementary school think he's weird. Because if you want to have normalcy until the moment where they come to kill him and then have him be faithful, it is never going to happen. Do you understand this? Here's what I have to say, and it's a tough thing, but I want you to hear it. You are not a patriotic American. You are a Christian. And if you think that you can go along to get along in our country, if you think you can fit in, and then at that moment you'll be faithful and you'll stand for the Lord, the devil has snookered you. It is not going to happen. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to read it by way of inspiration first. A statement uh, from the Apostle Paul. And I want you to hear it. It's 1 Timothy 3.12 and it says this. This is the Word of God. It's eternally true. In fact, so it's not saying sometimes, is it? It starts with the little words, in fact. Everyone, it doesn't say some people, it doesn't say particular times, it doesn't say people that have loud mouths, it says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, what? Will be persecuted. Not if they're so unfortunate that they don't live in the United States of America. In fact... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Do you know why the Christians were killed in the ancient Roman Empire? The ancient Roman Empire was filled with polytheism. The Apostle Paul goes into Athens, there's idols on every street corner, even an idol to an unknown God. You know why Christians were killed? Because they were the only group that said no to all the idols and said there is only one God. And so what were they killed for? They were killed for anarchy and atheism. You say anarchy? There's nothing anarchical about the early Christians. They say, yeah, it was. They stood in the face of the polytheism, of the pantheon of gods, and they said, no! They wouldn't sacrifice. They wouldn't tip the hat to the new constitution. And so slowly it began to get more and more aggressive and more and more aggressive. It started by trying to persecute the preachers. That's why in Canada today, you cannot read scripture about homosexuality without knowing that you can go to prison for doing that because it's hate speech. The Bible in Canada about homosexuality is now hate speech. Okay? They start with the preachers. And usually they can get most of us. And then they come for you. Right? Okay? And they came for the Christians. And the preachers wouldn't give in. And the older Titus II deaconess women wouldn't give in. And the young children were trying to run outside to die with their parents. And, and let me read you an account. This is a beautiful account about a woman. In the case of Afro of Augsburg, a converted prostitute. She suffered in the terror of Diocletian, the Roman emperor. And we're introduced to a new form of temptation of even more subtle power. The judge said to her, I hear you were a prostitute. Sacrifice then. In other words, bow the knee to the Roman God. Sacrifice then, for the God of Christians will have nothing to do with you. My Lord, she replied, He said that He came down from heaven to save sinners such as me. You see, the church will grow but it's not going to grow by Zondervan helping us out. It's not going to grow because we're going to get on the 700 Club. It's going to grow because there's going to be an infectious, seductive, beautiful, uh, holistic, organic, cheerful, self-forgetful, faithful, uh, playful, heavenly smell that comes out of us. People are going to see us playing at the park together and they're going to say, can I play too? We're going to love each other. Our homes are going to just ooze blood and sweat and tears and laughter. And the neighbors are going to come into our homes and say, what is all this life? And they're going to have just left the tube of death. And they're going to say, I've never seen this on television. (laughs) You know, unbelievable growth because people will see what God made us for. Okay, so this woman says, my Lord said that He came down from heaven to save sinners such as me. And in spite of all reproaches and arguments, she persisted in her faith in the power of Christ to save even to the uttermost. And so she too was handed over to the flames. And thus the harlot gained what Cyprian rightly calls the purple robe of the Lamb. So who's going to be first? Who's going to be first? Come on. Jump. You ready to die? you got to start. You can't just say 20 years from now when we're really evil. Better start. I love you all. And I'm treating you like sons. Women and men like sons. I want you to raise your children to be faithful like Zerubbabel. Don't compromise. Don't tip your hat to the new Constitution. Then, when the chance comes, you like this woman can say, Jesus came to save sinners. I'm ready. Okay? I mean, it's lunacy, but you with me? Huh? Huh? Uh, Don't lie. Let's pray.